Hello and welcome to this remote sermon podcast as we continue our series in First Peter. After beaches opened in our county, Dave took the kids and I to a rocky coastline. At one point, I found this tunnel in the cliff. Inside, it was dim, cold, and windy. I could see the jagged edges of the rocks all around and above me, looming in the eerie half-light. I kept going towards the light I could see at the end, and eventually I stepped out into this amazing little cove. There was a wide strip of shallow beach full of tide pools, shelled creatures and sea anemones clinging to every rocky surface. I could see the distant shoreline and the ocean stretching out into the horizon. In that place, surrounded by the sheltered vastness, I felt like I regained a perspective I had lost after being in the same walls surrounded by the same people for so many months. I felt like I could acknowledge the heaviness of this time in a new way. I looked back at the tunnel, and it looked different from the other side, no longer as dark or menacing. I ran back through and found our five-year-old and told her, Come on, you've got to see this. She didn't want to step into the tunnel, but I took her hand and we walked through together. As I was reading our passage for today from First Peter, I really wanted Peter to give us something specific and concrete for right now, like how to get the kids through a summer without camps, playgrounds, museums, or libraries, or strategies for reforming the justice system. There's so much we're bearing with and wading through right now. But Peter doesn't really get that specific. Instead, it's like he comes to us in the dark tunnel and takes our hand and says, let me tell you about the light on the other side. When you get to that place, you're going to look back at all of this in a completely different way. Let me show you how you can see things from a different perspective. Let me show you how that's going to make you live differently right now. So let's step back for a moment today and see what perspective Peter has to show us. Our passage is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Peter is going to tell us about three things. First, our perspective towards suffering. Secondly, our perspective towards time. And lastly, our perspective towards love. Firstly, what does Peter have to say about our perspective towards suffering? Verses 1 through 6 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, if you look closely, what Peter focuses on here isn't our suffering as much as our way of thinking about our suffering. This phrase is also translated attitude or purpose and literally means how you engage your mind. More important than our suffering is how we think about that suffering, because in the end, that is what really affects our response. Someone who wrote about this was Viktor Frankl, who's become popular reading during the pandemic. He was a physician, psychologist, and philosopher who survived for years in the concentration camps of World War II, only to find upon his release that his wife, siblings, and parents had all died. 
Rather than giving up, he went on to continue his work and write a book about his time in the concentration camps called Man's Search for Meaning. In it, he writes, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. Someone who wrote about Frankel put it this way, Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Our lives are determined more by how we respond to things than by the things themselves. Whether or not we have any control over our circumstances, we can begin by being aware of our way of thinking about them. As believers, we must have a certain attitude. What is this attitude? Well, Peter doesn't mean just having a chipper attitude or being in a good mood. He doesn't mean attitude the way we talk about having a good attitude. He's talking about a complete realignment of how we think, of how we see the world, of how we process things until it aligns with Christ's perspective. What is Christ's perspective on suffering? This passage begins, Since therefore Christ suffered. Now, you've probably heard, whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. And if we look back at chapter 3, verse 18, we read that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We see immediately that Jesus chose suffering. Now, consider that for a moment, that Jesus had to deliberately choose to follow God's will and suffer. It wasn't automatic or effortless. We also see that Jesus sees value and purpose in suffering. It achieves something that no other experience can. It brings us close to God. Jesus values that. He values our life in the spirit so much that he was willing to suffer greatly in the flesh. And this is the crux of it all. If we want to have Jesus' attitude towards suffering, we must see that life in the spirit, life in God's will, is so much more valuable than living for our own comfort. This is what Peter elaborates on in chapter 4. He puts it as strongly as to say, He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, he doesn't mean that suffering makes us sinless, but rather that suffering has the unique ability to show us what we're really living for, God's will or sin or our own desires. You know, when we see that phrase, human passions, and then the list that comes after it, it's easy to dismiss it all as somewhat irrelevant or extreme. But the word for human passions in Greek is epithemias. Epi means a strong focus upon, and thamias means desire. The word refers to an over-desire, an inordinate desire, any desire, good or bad, that is made into an idol. And this list includes things that were a part of Bacchus and Saturnalia festivals, guild meetings and civic holidays. Peter is not describing some perverse minority, but the culturally accepted majority so accepted that people were surprised when Christians did not join in. The point is, we all tend to live for human passions, for what we want. That's just our normal baseline. Even when we strive to follow God's will, it's so easy to stray back to living for ourselves and our comfort. And that's why suffering is helpful. 
Suffering is like this thing that rips back the curtain to show us what we're really living for. Is it really for God's will, even when it's uncomfortable? Or does some kind of idol or sin have a grip on our life? Suffering has a purifying kind of effect. It forces the dross up to the surface. It shows us all the impurities. And the more we value following Jesus wholeheartedly, the more we see value in suffering. If we have this perspective on suffering, we would probably spend less of our energy on worrying about the suffering or how to avoid future suffering and give more of our attention to asking what it is God may be magnifying or revealing to us in our suffering. We may even be willing to choose suffering if it means living out God's will. Now, how do we get there? How do we actually change our way of thinking so it's like Christ's? Peter says we have to arm ourselves. That's battle language, similar to when he says in chapter 1 that we should gird up the loins of our mind, or when he says in chapter 2 that sinful desires wage war against our souls. We must see that we're in a battle, a very real spiritual battle, and that we need to arm ourselves. I think about our boys running around the house, pretending a clothes hanger is a bow and arrow set or an empty paper towel roll is a sword. They go around all day with these things stuffed down their shirts and pants so they can whip them out and pretend fight when inspiration strikes. The point is, these things are not just lying around the house. The boys have them in hand or within arm's reach. They have invested these objects with thought and imagination. They've made them personal. They've practiced using them. And therefore, they are armed with them. Simply having a truth lying around is not the same as arming yourself with it. You have to proactively take that truth in hand, experience using it, personalize it, think upon it, feel it, until it becomes so much a part of you that it affects the very way you think, until it is driven from your head to your heart, until it becomes a truth you can wield in that moment when trouble or temptation comes. We have to do this regularly, even when we don't feel like it. We have to study Jesus' life and how he thought. We have to experience biblical truths through worship and song, journaling, praying, reading other good books, discussing with others. Did you know that 1 Peter has one of the highest ratios of Old Testament references in any New Testament book? He makes about 30 citations or allusions in just 105 verses. Peter was saturated in the Old Testament scripture, and I think he thought often about his time with Jesus. If you read through his letters looking for allusions to those times with Jesus in the gospel, you'll find lots of them. In all things, in all issues, we must align our way of thinking with Christ's. The more we do that, the more we come to see the value in suffering because it purifies and shapes us, because it reveals in us areas of sin, ignorance, or idolatry. Secondly, what does Peter have to say about our perspective towards time? Verse 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, you might be wondering, really? Didn't Peter write this over 1,900 years ago? Well, the Greek word for end here refers more to a period of time than a point in time. So in a sense, Peter is referring to the entire period of time after Christ, which we are still in. 
but I want to push this a little more. Let's say this statement is as true today as it was when Peter wrote it. What kind of perspective would it take to say that after 1900 years, the end is still at hand? What kind of perspective would it take to see 1900 years as a relative drop in the bucket? It would take a perspective that includes eternity. Francis Chan gave an illustration about this once using a piece of rope. He stood on one side of the room holding the end of a thick white rope that extended all the way across the stage and out the side door. He said, imagine this rope goes on forever. It wraps around the world a few times. Now, imagine this rope is a timeline of your existence. You exist forever. Then he held up the end of the rope, which he'd wrapped with some red tape. You see this red part? He said, this represents your time on earth. You've got a short time here on earth, and then you've got all of eternity somewhere else. This is your existence. And what blows me away, he said, is that some of you, all you think about is this red part. You're consumed with it. You say, I'm going to work really hard during this little red part here so I can enjoy this next little part here. Are you kidding me? What about the rest of the rope? The Bible teaches that what I do during this little red part determines how I'm going to exist for millions and millions and millions of years forever. So why would I spend this little red part trying to make myself as comfortable as possible, enjoying myself as much as I can? Why wouldn't you invest your life for that moment when you face God? Because once you face God, you don't get another chance at this time on earth. Everyone's living for the red part. No one's thinking about the millions of years after. Relative to eternity, one year, 1900 years, it doesn't matter. What matters is that the end of the red tape is at hand. Look at how Peter has talked about time so far. In verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time. In verse 3, for the time that is past suffices. He sees the limits of our time on earth, not only in the past, but also in the future. The rest of the time, he says. How many of us have that perspective? You know, one of the most remarkable things about this pandemic is the way it's changed our experience of time. When our calendar was full of weekly and daily events, time existed from activity to activity, from one little part of the red tape to the next little part of the red tape. Now, the impossible has happened. Our calendar has been wiped relatively blank. I find myself measuring time more in terms of its emotional or relational significance. It's made me realize there's a whole other way to see time that my calendar normally obscures. It's like we have a chance now to look up from the red tape and see time in a whole new way, one that includes eternity, that sees the end as being always at hand. Peter says this view of time should lead to being self-controlled and sober-minded. The same word for self-controlled here is used in Mark to describe the right mind a man has after Jesus casts out his demons. These words of right mind and sober-minded imply that it's possible to be mentally intoxicated, to be mentally clouded or out of touch with ultimate reality, to be like the person who knows that the rope goes on forever, but only ever thinks about the part where the red tape. I think there's two implications here. The first is that we ought to do an inventory of our mental diet. 
To be self-controlled and to stay sober is to avoid the consumption of intoxicating substances. Just like we talked earlier about what it means to arm ourselves by engaging regularly with the truth, we now have to ask, am I consuming something that gets in the way of that? Is there something I'm watching, reading, imagining, listening to that's gradually or ultimately going to erode my sense of the eternal or my ability to live for it? This is a pretty personal question. The answers will look different for each of us, and only we with the Holy Spirit can really answer it, but it's important to ask. The second implication is that we ought to live attentive lives. Being sober means being present to the social issues or relational needs around us, present to the heaviness or the emptiness or the joys. But being sober-minded while keeping the end of all things in mind also means holding the present in view with the eternal at the same time. It's giving attention to how God is moving in and around current day events and issues. It's learning to look not just at things, but through them to what God is revealing in the everyday. Ruth Haley Barton calls us having sacred eyes. She writes in her book, Invitation to Solitude and Silence, I turn inward to that place of quiet where I had grown accustomed to meeting God. I asked God to give me sacred eyes, set apart eyes, to see and feel and know spiritual reality in this moment. Julian of Norwich describes being present to God while in the company of others in this way. I look at God, I look at you, and I keep looking at God. Peter says we should be sober specifically for the sake of our prayers. We should be sober in a way that allows us to listen to God, to look for him, to speak in return to him. When our minds are clouded or distracted, we miss out on all of that. So we need to have a perspective of time that keeps eternity and the end of all things in mind in a way that makes us alert to the things that really matter right now. Lastly, what does Peter have to say about our perspective towards love? Let's read the rest of our passage, verses 8 through 11. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our way of thinking always changes our way of living and therefore who we become. It's like that old saying of how thoughts lead to words, which lead to actions, which lead to habits, which lead to character. And so Peter moves here from our ways of thinking about suffering in time to the way we live that out. Above all, he says, love earnestly. The word for earnestly literally means to stretch out. It was an athlete's word. It refers to the straining and effort or stretching out of every muscle that an athlete would experience. You know, so often we think love should be effortless. We fall in love, right? It should feel natural and nice. You know, start off with a meet-cute and end with someone running through an airport. But Peter suggests a different perspective of love. Love is actually more like a workout 
by definition, a workout is good if it feels difficult. With the closure of gyms, I force myself to go running outside sometimes, which is really so much harder than pushing myself up and down on a flat treadmill in an air-conditioned room while a fan blows on my face. When I'm running outside, I pretty much hate my life, but that's kind of the point. Love is like that sometimes. It should feel hard. When Peter says that love stretches out, so to speak, to cover a multitude of sins, he's referring to a common saying from Proverbs 10:12: Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. To love this way means not responding in kind when we're hurt by others, to have equanimity rather than stir up conflict. And that's not easy. Having this perspective on love means we are willing to show hospitality without complaining. This one may seem irrelevant right now, but I have to read you this quote from a Washington Post article entitled, Your Quarantine Experience, Reviewed Like a Hotel. One person wrote this, A three-foot squatter keeps eating all the complimentary continental breakfast before anyone else has a chance, and the coffee ran out two days into our stay. On a positive note, the very relaxed resort attire is appreciated, though as indicated by the squatter, I was unaware this was a clothing-optional resort upon check-in. <laughs> if we are living with other people during this shelter-in-place, then in a sense we are being hospitable. We are continually sharing with them far more of our space, food, time, and presence than perhaps we were before. And more than ever, we're all aware of how challenging it can be. But Peter encourages us to do this with a good heart without complaining. This perspective on love also leads us to use our gifts to serve. When we're in a difficult time, there's the tendency to involute, to draw in on ourselves, and that's understandable. But I think Peter would challenge us not to see this as a time when we can't use our gifts just because so much has changed, but rather to find ways to continue using them. We have each received gifts for the purpose of using them to serve others. And the great promise here is that God will give us the words and the strength we need to do it. I want to end with one last reflection on this word, earnestly. At first glance, this word does not seem to appear anywhere else in the Bible other than here in 1 Peter. But if you look in Luke twenty-two forty-four. You'll see this word again in a more intensified form. It's the only place in the Bible this intensified form appears. Luke twenty-two forty-four says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke is talking about Jesus, who broke out in a sweat, who stretched out his whole body on the cross who through the most earnest of loves covered our multitude of sins. That's what it means to love earnestly. Jesus showed us. He stretched himself to the point of sweat and blood and death for you and for me. And that's why we can do all of this. It all goes back to the therefore. Since therefore Christ suffered, we can find meaning in our suffering. Since therefore Christ suffered, we can have hope for the end of all things and the eternity beyond. Since therefore Christ suffered, we can love earnestly as he did. Peter says back in chapter 2, we have been called to suffer and endure because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
Ultimately, having the right perspective on suffering and time and love is all about aligning ourselves with the perspective of Christ himself, about following in his steps by growing more like him in how we think and how we see other people and how we act. May God give us the perspective of Christ in this moment in history right now. May he make us people who are armed with Christ's way of thinking, who are sober and awakened to the truths around us, and who love in a costly way. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these words from Peter, who comes alongside us during these heavy times to remind us of the perspective we have in Christ. Lord, strengthen and encourage and challenge whoever is listening to this right now so that they may be armed with your way of thinking, sober to these times and light of eternity and love in a costly way. In everything, God, may you be glorified, for to you belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>